Welcome to Peak Health Unlocked, a docu-series show interviewing experts to unpack the latest science, technology, and wellness practices, all with the purpose of helping you unlock your peak health. This show would not be possible without the support of Thrive Performance and Regenerative Medicine, a team prepared to go all in to craft your personalized peak health plan. Visit the link in the show notes to start your health transformation. Enjoy the show. Dr. Mansour Mohammed is the founder and president of Managene, which was acquired by the DNA company and merged with Utrients to launch one of Canada's most innovative lifestyle and functional genomics companies. He is widely regarded as a pioneer in medical genomics and has been the recipient of multiple academic and industry awards. He is the holder of several patents in the general fields of molecular diagnostics and genomics research. At this crucial time in history, anyone, yes, anyone can learn about and understand their genetically influenced outcomes to infectious diseases and precisely what they need to do to alter them. Whether you're trying to understand your body's unique genetic makeup, enhance your immune system, or anticipate how your body responds to infectious diseases such as coronavirus, the DNA company's one-of-a-kind comprehensive infectious disease risk factor report has the potential to improve your life. This report makes optimizing health straightforward, and the results provide you with an organized summary of your genetic makeup as it relates to infectious diseases and a set of simple, actionable, and individualized recommendations that are tailor-made to your unique genetics. Please use our link, which will be included in the show notes, to purchase your full genomics profile at a discounted rate. Let us help you unlock your peak health. Thrive, empowering your health. First question everyone gets on this series, just so we all start at the same place, is, is simply, from your perspective, how do you define immunity? Hmm. Just, I think, as, gener- as generically as, as possible, immunity is the ability, of, and, and speaking here, of course, from a human perspective, is the ability of the human body to face the challenges, the, the, the constant challenges, both from a microbial world and otherwise, um, and overcome the inflammatory and otherwise cellular challenges from those from the microbial world. Excellent, Dr. Mansour. This is Philip. So, um, you know, you come from this perspective as a geneticist and an expert in gene analysis, and you have a company, the DNA company, that goes over functional genomics. I think a good place to start is let's define what functional genomics is and how that plays into the clinical application for immunity. Nice. I think when most people think of genomics, they think of it in a somewhat polarized manner. Genomics, sometimes used synonymously as genetics, there's a slight difference. Genomics refers to the not just the study of the genes, but the data and the algorithmic use of that data. So it looks genomics is about using the entirety of the human genome manual, if you will, Okay, but when most people use it synonymously, genetics, genomics, and I think when they think of genetics and or genomics, they think of it in this polarized manner. It's either this sort of disease association, the type of things we see in clinical hardcore oncology. You have such and such cancer gene mutation, which leads to such and such cancer. You have such and such uh, inborn genetic mutation. Some otherwise known as a constitutional mutation, and you will have such and such syndrome. 
Uh, and that's one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, we see a far more consumerized, what we might call recreational use of genetics, this concept of, well, what's the, you know, what's your genetic predisposition, predisposition for eye color or hair color? And I often tell people, go look in the mirror if you want to look, you know, know those things. <laughs> but in between, you know, in between, there's this huge gulf that we've missed, i.e. in between the, you have this mutation equal this disease and the more, you know, recreational perspective of genetics. In between all of that, you have the majority of the human genomic manual, meaning because that's what your genome is. Your genome, the sum total of all of your genes and supporting DNA sequences, because the majority of your DNA sequences aren't involved in actual gene coding. So that sum total of your genomic manual is exactly that. It's a manual that dictates that significantly contributes, that, that gives the bedrock of how your cells and your organs and your body as a holism is going to work. So what is functional genomics then? Functional genomics is the intelligent review of the human genomic manual with an eye towards how is this person's unique manual, in as much as our individual manuals are exceptionally similar one to each other, there are enough subtle differences, there are enough genomic variations that make the outcome from that genomic instruction, from that genomic manual, different one to each other. And these differences are not just in the very obvious superficial outward differences. These differences are equally and frankly more so at the cellular level. So as much as human beings, all things equal, our cells are performing all of the same jobs that's what we have to do to stay alive and to thrive, or hopefully to thrive. The capacity, the efficiency with which we accomplish these multitude, this plethora of cellular functions does differ. And that's what functional genomics is. So in summary, functional genomics is about reading the genomic operating manual of the human being, not just towards looking at obvious mut disease mutations, but towards looking at those instructions that we all harbor, but we harbor different coding, different efficiencies to those instructions. And those different efficiencies, when summated, can lead to significantly different behavioral, cellular behavioral patterns, one person to the next. Well said. <laughs> Dr. Mansour, I just want to, before we dive into the deep science and how it pertains to immunity. I just want to um, give you a chance and showcase what you guys actually do. So at Thrive, we have this term called precision medicine. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons that we talk about precision medicine is we are obviously trying to incorporate the, the use, uh, usage of genomics and some of the genomic data to affect clinical outcome. And I think it goes without saying, first off, we're very privileged to work with you, but I think it, it just want to showcase that it takes an enormous amount of energy to take the information and the data and, and try to crunch that down into something that is clinically relevant for patients on the clinical side. Because I can definitely tell you that right now, that as soon as genetics and genomics hit, hit the hit mainstream, a lot of people may or may not be looking at the data correctly or may not know how to. So first off, you know, thank you for all your efforts and that your team are doing, but, you know, just maybe speak a little bit about in general about what you guys do over um, at your company and, and all the great things that you're doing right now. 
Indeed. So building on what I said as an introduction to genomics, one of the f- it's not a floor, but it's an archaic, it's a vestige with which we compute or with which we design clinical trials. So when you think of any clinical trial, any study of the human entity through the lenses of a medical approach, a pharmaceutic approach, what do you do? And, and, and if we enter genetics into that, and so if we understand what we classically do, you will then understand what we've done at the DNA company and what we've highlight, highlighted as, as an Arkley's heel of the existing system, what needed to be changed, and that is therefore what we're doing. So coming back to what do we classically do? When you design a clinical trial, and, and obviously I'm speaking here in simple terms, there, there are nuances to this. I don't want a statistician in the audience to jump at me. I'm keeping it simple and I'm keeping it real. When you design a clinical trial for supposedly some phenotypic outcome, some, some malaise outcome that you're trying to study, and maybe you're trying to determine if a particular pharmaceutic, if a particular drug is suitable to that malaise, to that health uh, concern. What do we do? We choose a disease population, okay, and we choose a control population. And of course, we're trying to base assumptions on what is either happening in the disease population, which presumably is not happening in the control population, and we do the clinical trials accordingly. Now, from a genetic perspective, what we long since determined was there was a flaw in this more standard approach. What is this flaw? Let's take autism as a very, very good example. When the human genome was sequenced, okay, we, everyone in the autistic world, the autistic research world, of which I was part of, we were really anxious. We were just chomping at the bit because we thought, given that clearly every clinical trial, every data association showed that there was a significant genetic component to autism, significant, you know, the, the twin studies, uh, SIBSHIP studies, and so on and so forth, made it obvious that there was a very strong genetic component to autism. So if that was the case, and given that we had sequenced the human genome, we're talking here now, I'm dating myself a little, but 2001, 2002, 2003, we felt that finally we were going to now sequence the genomes of these autistic children. We were going to find the corpus of genes that when mutated led to autism. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's we all went in with that enthusiasm. To date, I mean, as of 2021, using that approach, we have found the genetic correlate. We have found the genetic underpinnings of about 18 percent of autistic children. 18. Okay, mm-hmm. meaning 82 percent of children with overt autism, when their genomes were sequenced we could not find an overt or clarifying genetic mutation. Now, to be clear, this number from 18% goes up to about 25% when you include other genetic changes, ch- genetic changes that were not were previously known and were not previously solely associated with autism, but with other syndromes within which the autistic spectrum can reside. So let's just be as forgiving as possible. We have, through genome sequencing, solved 25% of autistic children, meaning we could find what the etiologic, the causative genetic variation is, leaving 75% of children with overt autism. When we look at their genomes by this traditional approach, we've not been able to find any clear genetic association. 
Now, what is what is the risk? What is the what is the point here? The point is, you see, if we go to the original way, the traditional way that we looked at clinical trials and looking at the genome, here's what you want to do: you're going to take that autistic child, his genome, her genome. You're going to take the genome of a apparently and apparently unaffected sibling, apparently unaffected adults, parents, un- apparently unaffected children of the same ethnicity and age and sex. And you're going to go, well, I'm only looking for the changes that are unique in the child with autism that is not present in the child that does not have autism. And therein lies a flaw. And the flaw is, yes, 25% of the time is being forgiving, you will accomplish your goal. 75% of the times you're coming up with nada. And why are you coming up with nada? Because what you've done is you've set the stage. You're saying, if I'm going to have autism, I must have a genetic variation that is not present in the quote-unquote normal population. But that is a fallacy. And that is where functional genomics comes in. You see, what did we find? We found that there are genetic variations that the you and me, the Rets and the Phillips, not saying that you guys are autistic, Munster included, okay, that we, we all <laughs> questionable, okay, but we, we all have genetic variations, okay? Every human being has genetic variations. Those genetic variations impact a multitude of cellular processes, impacting these cellular processes how? Making them maybe a little bit less efficient, a lot more inefficient, uh, 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 but not enough to be clinically obvious. So that in the quote-unquote normal human population, we could have this plethora of genetic variations throughout our operating manual affecting the here and there of cellular functions. And so we avoid looking at those things because we say, well, hey, if it's, a, if it's there in the normal population, it couldn't be causative of the disease. But what we've missed is this basic science, that there is a threshold of cellular performance. So you see diseases, including things like the autistic spectrum, can be caused when there are sufficient numbers of apparent in the normal population genomic changes, and when by circumstance and happenstance enough of these quote-unquote normal variations happen in the right wrong environment, just enough of a embryonic exposure, just enough of a uh, early childhood exposure, including, by the way, challenges to the immune system, then we can trigger the development of disease. So if you've understood everything that I just had to say in summary, what we're doing is, at the DNA company, we're looking at the human genome of the average person, the person who is you know, otherwise potentially healthy, but we're asking how many functions at the cellular level, even in a healthy individual, because there's no such thing as, quote-unquote, a perfect genome, okay? How many places, as, as quote-unquote, healthy adults, do we have aberrations, variations, that are reducing the efficiency of cellular function, okay? And that in any one person, those efficiencies might not be enough to cause acute or apparent disease, But when there are enough of these combinations of genomic variations put together with the appropriate 
inappropriate environmental insult with the appropriate suboptimal nutrition intake, and now we have disease. This is the crossroads of what has been missing in the genomic world. This is the crossroad that's going to be much more applicable to the average Joe who's saying, listen, I'm going about my life. I'm trying to be, you know, as healthy an eater. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm a weekend warrior exercise guy. I'm, you know, I'm doing what I can, I can do. Why am I still a concern of chronic diseases? Why does it happen when I moved into that home and unbeknownst to me, that home was riddled with mold? Why does it happen when unbeknownst to me, something got into my diet that I didn't appreciate it was affecting my gastrointestinal barrier function? Why did it happen to me when you know, I was in one too many antibiotics for a stretch there of some, you know, aboriginal uh, uh, microbial infection. And then right after the antibiotic regimen, my, my health really went down the drain. This perspective of health through a whole genome lens, not just looking for what we would call diagnostic overt genetic mutations, but rather looking for the genetic variations that impact each one of us at the cellular level, small or sometimes not so small inefficiencies that when added together and when combined with the right wrong environment, when combined with the right wrong nutrition, when combined with the right wrong change to one's microbiome, is as much a concern, and frankly, I would say a concern in the bigger numbers than when we're just looking for that one hit wonder, this gene causes this disease. Sorry for carrying on, but that's now that you understand what was done and where the error is and why we need to do what we're doing, that's our focal point. Yeah, no, that is a beautiful description of, of what precision medicine is, and I think it's definitely, you're one of the pioneers in this field, and like Rhett said, we're very excited to work with your company. And um, it is going to be the future of medicine. So it, it's an exciting field to get into. And it also allows you to, as a clinician, relearn a lot of things that you may thought you knew about medicine. But like you said, you're applying not only the genomics, but you're applying the the epigenetics that go with it, the environment, the food, the exposures, the toxins, and putting it all together and really understanding these different pathways and how those pathways can be uh, either biohacked or can be affected with some type of clinical intervention. So how is it that you go about choosing relevant SNPs? And you can um, define what a SNP is or, def uh, or choose clusters of genes that are clinically impactful. Because I know there's, there's thousands and thousands of SNPs. If you go to different companies, you can get thousands of them run, and then some mm -hmm. are contradictory to each other. But I know you have a very specific set, like maybe 40 or so, that, that come with your report. Indeed. I guess let's quickly go back to the definition and use a template upon which we can describe the human genome. So the human genome can really quite readily be defined as an operating manual, you know, with its words in which, and, and those words form sentences and those sentences form paragraphs. And each paragraph, for example, is a definitive instruction. So in this operating manual, we can call the discrete paragraphs that is that comprises a very clear and obvious instruction as a gene. And then those paragraphs are embedded in this glorious manuscript, this glorious operating manual, which is the human genome, of which there are 23 volumes times two, one from each parent. Now, 
SNPs would be spelling changes within that sentence or paragraph, within that gene. So we all have the gene, we should all have the gene, we should all have the instructions, two copies of it. And sometimes, somewhere in that lettered sentence paragraph, there's a variation, there is, you know, a change in the coding of that paragraph. And this is called a SNP, a single, i.e. the place in which there's that letter or nucleotide change. And by the way, that's what a SNP is, single nucleotide here. Nucleotide is just really the alphabetical lettering system, the four-lettered ACGT of the human genome. And polymorphism is really nothing other than a sexy scientific way of saying variation. So what do we mean? We say, here is the paragraph. It is a code. It is an instruction. We all have it. We all have almost the identical version of it. But sometimes at the fifth letter in that paragraph, the 25th letter in that paragraph, and given the genes are hundreds of letters, most genes are into the thousands of letters, we can say at, you know what, when we screened enough human beings, when we looked at this particular gene, which was 10,000 letters put together, at position 622, some human beings have the G nucleotide, other human beings have the A nucleotide. Everything else in that gene, everything else in that 10,000-lettered gene is the same, but at the 622nd position, or whatever position, some people have a G, some people have an A. This is a SNP, okay? A single nucleotide polymorphism. Before I go any further, one of the things that we should all know, and this is something that definitely the lay, lay community often is unaware of, but I'm surprised how many clinicians are often unaware of it as well. And that is just like any operating manual, the changes that can occur are not just spelling errors. You see, there are changes, believe it or not, if you look Rhett, Philip, Mark, myself, just, just four gentlemen of probably diverse backgrounds, at least I'm the I'm the Caribbean mutt. I've got lots of different ethnicities, you know, blended into me. <laughs> I'm Caribbean, so I, can, I feel your pain. <laughs> so, so, you know, if we, if we just take the four of us, I guarantee you, this is not even a question. More than one of us will have places where not only do we have a letter variation, believe it or not, we, each one of us, each four of us, have places where we are missing an entire paragraph, meaning the whole gene and genes surrounding that paragraph, we didn't inherit it. You see, the magic number of the human genome is two. We should have two copies of every gene, one from mom, one from dad, all things equal, not including the sex chromosomes. But even when we look at the genes that we should have two copies of, there are many, every single human being has examples where they don't have two copies of the gene. They may only have one copy of the gene. They may have more than two copies of the gene. And believe it or not, there are examples where we don't have that gene altogether. Keep in mind, we're not talking about a SNP here, SNP being that you have the gene, but you had a variation, a single letter variation within the gene, and presumably that lettered change, that movement from a G to an A, created enough morphologic change 
to the outcome of that gene. And just for everyone listening, what do genes encode? They encode the building blocks of our body, the proteins, the doing things of our body, the enzymes, the transporters. Genes give the instructions that build and operate our cells. And so when we change one of the letters, when we have a SNP in a gene, sometimes, not always, and I'm going to comment on this very shortly, that letter change was enough of a change in the out in the ultimate outcome protein, which might be an enzyme. That enzyme might be metabolizing something in our body. And that SNP changed the efficacy of that enzyme enough such that whatever was the job that enzyme was supposed to do, the person with the G version of the gene versus the A version of the gene will ultimately do that job either more or less efficiently. That's the world of SNPs. Mm -hmm. But there's another world, the world where sometimes we don't even have the gene altogether, which means we don't even have the enzyme that we're talking about, which means, and by the way, the fact that this occurs in living, otherwise healthy adults tell us that our cells have duplicate processes we have backup mechanisms because if you're not missing if you're missing a gene and that gene isn't there to do its job well the human body isn't made up of things that are happenstance you shouldn't be living if you have something missing the fact right. that you can live and thrive is that there are alternate pathways for yourselves to do that job so to come back and now conclude what we're doing differently is we're looking at all variations to the human genome, those which are SNPs, those which are the, the deletions that I talk about are called copy number variations. And we're asking, we first take a completely gene agnostic approach. What does this mean? Let's kick the geneticists out of the room. Okay, so we're not, we don't want Mansur in the room for the time being. What we want is we want to look at a cellular cellular function, be it a cardiac cell, a, neur a neuron cell, a muscle cell, a liver cell, you name it. And we're going to ask, here's a cell. Biologically, it needs to do X number of jobs in order for it to perform and contribute to the healthy holism of the human body. Okay, what are these jobs that the cell has to do? Those jobs are going to be contributed by genes. Let's go find the genes that contribute to these jobs. And then let's ask, in those genes that contribute to these biochemical processes, that contribute to cellular function, that contribute to holistic health, are there noteworthy changes across all of the different type of changes, not just SNPs, but CMVs, indels, and so on and so forth? Are there changes that impact the genes, that impact cellular functions, that will obviously impacts cellular behavior. So in conclusion, what we do differently is twofold. We take, we don't just look at SNPs, number one. We look at all types of genetic variations of which, as I mentioned, there are more variations than just SNPs. Number two, we're not just collecting SNP-associated data. Just because there's a change in the sequence of the gene doesn't mean that it's going to affect cellular function in an apparently or in an obviously 
trackable manner. So we are only looking at those variations in pathways that we can measure, that we can actionalize, that we can say, if this becomes inefficient, you will begin to see the following cellular deficiencies. That's what defines what we do. And it's why we've been able to make such huge clinical gains to say nothing of the fact that we've screened over 10,000 individuals looking intimately. This is not a research project where we don't know the person. This is where we know the person, male, female, their health history, their family history. How do they perform? How do they respond to foods? We, we have all of this information and we're screening and filtering that through these functional genomic pathways. What comes out the other end has just been really a work of passion, love. It's really transformed the way we and many others have looked at medicine. This is fascinating. I mean, I feel like I've been on mute just taking it all in, but I, I just want to say one thing. I mean, I, I love the I love the fact that this isn't all hidden from the general public and it's not just, you know, academic work. This is this is resulting in and causing uh, great advances for everyone out there, right? And and that's kind of where my question's coming from, you know, as a patient or a client of either Thrive or any other health team that you're involved with, what should the the patient be asking about if if they if they're going in knowing that there's going to be some genomic work in their in their health plan? What you know, what type of things should they be uh, aware of or or getting information about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Such a such a powerful, beautiful, and relevant question. So, you know, we oftentimes wear the hat as clinicians, myself as a clinical genomicist, yourself as medical clinicians, and we sometimes forget what it was like to wear the hat as a patient. And so, if I were a patient and I was looking at genetic testing, like I said, you know, look, I, I come from a background and I come from a personality where, to me, information is empowering. So any information is empowering. However, for the average person, you want that information to transcend just being another factoid. So if I'm going to get a genetic test, I want to know three things. I want to know the accuracy of it. Like, you know, is this something that I can feel fairly confident is accurate? And just by the way, genetic testing has gotten to the point now, and I don't mean to trivialize it, it has gotten to the point now where we can practically do it in our garage with a standalone pluggable piece of machine. I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit, obviously, but it's no longer, what what I'm trying to say is that the, the, the accuracy of genetic testing has really been leaps and bounds. And for the most part, for the most part, genetic information from just about any decent lab, any regulated lab is something that we can trust the result that comes from it. I'm speaking generically, and obviously there are exceptions to the rule, but I really want to take away, you know, that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we had to hold a banner that was a little higher that, you know, well, where did you get that that test done? Was it reputable or not? Now, you know, for example, the DNA company, we don't, you know, we're not shouting saying, you know, we've got the most accurate test because frankly, there's a dime a dozen other tests that is just as accurate. But that's the first of the things you want to ask. Is it accurate? Number two, and more importantly, what is this going to tell me about the function of my body? Is it going to explain something? Is it, is it an artifice of information that it might be sexy and cute to know? You know, for example, when, when not to name any companies, but there are companies out there collecting lots of information. And one of the genes that were being tested for was whether you're going to have leaky wax syndrome, like literally, 
Whether you're going to have leafy wax syndrome, is the wax in your ear going, and I'm, okay, I'm, I'm not being trivial. I mean, that's a real thing. Okay. Well, you know, again, might be cool, might be sexy. You know, you need to plan whether you're going to buy Q-tips or not, but <laughs> really isn't going to be life-changing to me. So in the second category, I want you to tell me, me the patient, I want to know that the information you're going to provide to me is information that will explain to me why my body is behaving in a certain way. Why do I respond to such and such? Why do I not respond to such and such? Why am I having a plateau in my health optimization steps while my buddy who ostensibly eats at the same place as I eat lives the same that I live he is continuing to excel when I am not right so I want you to explain or at least ideally the second thing I want from testing as a patient I, I need it to be relevant to me so I need it to be accurate I need it to be relevant and then finally the third thing is I need it to be actionable now, I give, here's where I'm going to be different as a patient. For me, the explanation means more to me than anything else. So in other words, just by explaining to me why my body is behaving a certain way is king for me. Not always does an explanation come with a fix or a cure. Not always. But at least now I can appreciate why something is happening to me as opposed to just sort of acting in the gray zone. But ideally, this should be the third thing. And ideally, that third thing is now that I know why my body, i.e. at the cellular level, is behaving a certain way, can I do something about this? Can I take aversive actions? Can I change something that I thought was healthy, but it turns out was not precision to me? That's the three things that we want to ask from a patient or as a patient to your clinician. So Thrive Medical, Thrive Medicine, when you bring about these services to your patients, you should be able, well, you definitely should be able to tell them the tests are accurate and the results are accurate, but you, you absolutely want to be able to show your patients that by this information, other than being astute and amazing clinicians who were trained in the art and medicine is there's an art to medicine at its purest and most beautiful form that you can say, look, I was, I was understanding, I was tracking why your body was performing, why were you not performing, why you were responding or not responding. But I now have a more intimate, a more nuanced pair of lenses through which I can be a better clinician for you. That's group position, the, the second point. And then thirdly, I then hope, ultimately, and you have to be straight with your patients. You have to tell them, look, when I do a consult, Rep. Philip, I always tell my patients, I says, look, I'm pretty sure I'm going to explain to you why something's happening in your body, whatever it was you were, you were concerned. I'm pretty sure. More often than not, I can explain why it's happening. I'm not always clear that I'm going to be able to solve what to do about it, but I will tell you while it's happening. And you know what? Patients appreciate that. So patients appreciate there's a difference between the relevance of the information and then ultimately the actionability, which ideally we want all of the information to be actionable, but just letting patients know the reality of it. Thank you for that. Yeah, no doubt. Like you said, you know, a lot of times we forget what it is to be like a patient. So approaching it or actually even hearing that as a clinician gives you, I guess, more understanding, more empathy of like how to approach discussing this information with a patient or a client. And, and you're right, everything does have to be kind of actionable and developing that narrative with the client and being able to talk to them 
and even admitting when there's something that's not known, uh, you know, clients appreciate that. But so yeah, now that we've defined everything, uh, let's let's kind of jump into the immunity aspect of genomics. Kind of like maybe describe some of the the SNPs or the genes that really that on these reports that we need to really be focused in on or kind of hone in on to either uh, modify our immunity or improve our immunity? Indeed. So if we go back to that basic and frankly very, I don't want to use the word superficial and shoot myself in the foot, but I gave a very basic definition of immunity when you asked me, and I said it was really the body's ability, the human body, here we're speaking of human immunity, obviously, to deal with the challenges that it faces and respond in an appropriate manner. Let's get a little bit more nuanced in that. I think when most people think of immunity, by the way, my, my first PhD is in humoral immunity. I did my work on the transgenics of B cells. In other words, I was taking human antibody genes, specifically the IgG gene and the antibodies that would be encoded by it. And I was putting those human genes into animal models to get those animals to express human antibodies in an attempt for us to be able to harvest those human antibodies. And this was in those heady days of stem cell and transgenic research in the 1990s. So I was what we would consider a humoral, not humorous, although that might also be the case, a humoral genomicist. A hum humoral immunity is that which is derived from the B cells that gives the pr that produces antibodies. But one's immune system is way more than just the ability to produce antibodies. We have, as a, uh, in addition to the humoral B cell antibody immunity, we have the innate immunity, the T cells, of which we have the natural killer cells, of which we have much of our antiviral protection also comes not just from antibody production, but from the T cell population in the body. So here we have now this, this immune, classically derived or classically explained immune system. To be clear, the number of genetic, we do not look, we, in our gene portfolio, and frankly, in an even much broader genome portfolio, there aren't a lot of genes and there aren't a lot of variations in those genes that ultimately impact that puritanical definition of immunity. If there were, we would have individuals walking around with marked genetic variations in their immune, in their puritanical B-cell, T-cell capacity. And frankly, that wouldn't be a good thing. So when you look at gen genetic variation, when you look at genetic drift, meaning the type of variations that occur in populations across the world, there actually aren't a lot of gene variations that drastically impact our innate immunity. Okay, just to be clear. So then what is there, and I'm not saying that there aren't any, there are some, and when you have some of these variations, they fall into that category of disease that we spoke of before, where they're really poor outcome diseases, like, you know, it's an actual syndrome, or it's an actual disease. But for the average Joe, the average Joe isn't walking around with genetic variations that impacts the efficiency of their B cell antibody production, and their T cell natural cells and their T cell population very much. Okay? And this is something, again, that is poorly understood. There are exceptions to the rule, but we're speaking here for the larger population. So what then becomes interesting about genetics and immunity? 
Well, it's why I said immunity can be described as something beyond that classical, humoral, and innate immune system. It is the first things first is, if you think of immunity and you look at it as the challenge, immunity and the topic of immunity, how does that human being deal with the challenges, microbial, chemical, organic, inorganic, thrown at it? The first thing that you've got to ask actually is, how do these things, these challenges, enter the human body? Okay, They enter the human body by the borders of entry of the human body. What are the borders of entry of the human body? Well, the three major borders of entry of the human body are the skin, the respiratory tract, and the gastrointestinal tract. You see, it is through these entry portals, borders of entry, do the things that will challenge our immunity have to cross in the first place. And whereas there aren't a lot of genetic variations impacting the actual immune system, there are a plethora of genetic changes that impact one person to the next, the health of their border system, the the health of their border patrol system. And so now we can start to build intelligent genetic testing that describes and explains why does one one person's respiratory tract, why is this person always ending up with respiratory symptomologies of whether it be sinus infections or whether it be asthma-like presentations? Why does this person always end up with more gastrointestinal, you know, idiopathic, because we couldn't explain the word for it, idiopathic bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. These are all, when we think of the immune topic, they're actually part of that topic because why they first begin to describe the true differences that one person has to the next in terms of their borders and their border patrol. So an example of this is In both the respiratory tract and the gastrointestinal tract, what we refer to as the gastrointestinal barrier function, that interface between the lumen, the inner part of the gut where your food is at, and then how how do those metabolites, those digestive products, cross from the inner gut into the bloodstream? And of course, they've got to cross the gambit of the microbiome. This is known as the gastrointestinal barrier function. And there are genes that produce detox enzymes, some of the most important of them being your glutathione transferase genes. Let's break that down very, very quickly. Glutathione is the most common antioxidant and detoxifying uh, moiety, it's molecule, It's, 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 it's a very small Uh, tri-amino acid peptide. So it's a tiny peptide. And this tiny peptide, glutathione, when it is attached to oxidants, it renders the oxidants neutralized. When it is attached to toxins, it renders the toxins either neutralized or more water-soluble. So we can pass it from the kidney, through the bladder, out through the urine. Okay, glutathione. Well, there are genes instructions to tell the body how to use that glutathione to do the job of detoxifying antioxidizing. Well, why is this important? These glutathione transferase genes, the word tells you it's transferring the glutathione onto the toxin, they're super important adjuncts, 
extensions of the immune system. Why? Because these enzymes are going to detoxify the organic or inorganic nasties, the organic or inorganic toxins produced from bacteria, produced in the organic case or inorganic toxins before they come in the barrier function, before they cross the border. And by the way, there are genes that affects the border, the integrity of the border in the first place. So, so to summarize, to clarify, we do not look at a lot of genes because there aren't very many genes that are impacting actual antibody function or actual B or T cell function. But there are excellent gene pathways, detox pathways, transferase pathways, absorption pathways that the genes for those pathways will determine two things. The integrity of your border, which of course is the integrity that you have to fend off the things that would have otherwise come into your body that would then challenge your immune system. So the border integrity and the patrol at the borders, the detox, the transferases, these are the genes that we look at. Amongst them, the glutathione genes, methylation. We then also look, in conclusion and very quickly, other parts of the immune system. You see, now when you engage the immune system, the, the puritanical, when you engage, something has now crossed your border, because by the way, your border genetics was a bit suboptimal. Your border patrol was not as tough and as you know patrolling as they needed to be. So now the invading things, organic or inorganic, has gotten into your body, and now they're challenging your puritanical B-cell, T-cell uh, immunity. Well, now the amplitude the voraciousness of your immune system, the volume of your immune system, the volume of your antibody production, your T-cell migration is controlled by things, cytokines, interferons, these messengers that are acting between the command center and the foot soldiers, and the amount of alarm bells they raise influence the intensity of your immune response, because in any weirdly co-evolutionary manner, as much as our immune system is there to protect us, much of what we face as illnesses post-infection is because of our immune system, such as the cytokine storms, the uncontrolled immune response secondary to COVID that we've seen. So in these messenger genes, again, notice it's not part of the puritanical B cell, T cell, but they are the they control the volume of the immune response. We also look at SNPs in those genes. You mentioned COVID there, which was going to be my follow-up question, because that it was so well said. Uh, but I'm curious you know, from your perspective, how we can help protect ourselves more or what we should be looking at from a COVID perspective? Oh, gosh. So, you know, one of the things when we speak of COVID and when we look at the medical response, and this is by no means meant to be a controversial response. When we look at our response to COVID, what have we seen? We have seen that classical response in which two things, that Yes, it was a new viral infection, and because it was quote-unquote new, we somehow could not learn from all of the a priori knowledge we had. So what does this mean? It means that we absolutely had to look for a new drug, and we absolutely had to look for a new vaccine. Let me make it clear. 
vaccines, hugely important here for the long-term move forward from COVID. But my point here is when COVID showed up, as is unfortunately our way, we don't look at the amazing corpus of knowledge we already have. And the reason I'm highlighting this is that there was so much about COVID as a coronavirus, a new version of a coronavirus, but all the same a virus that were we to have understood how viruses work generically, how coronaviruses work more specifically, and more than that, how previous cousins of the corona COVID uh, SARS-CoV-2, meaning the previous SARS and MERS viruses, we would have been far better equipped to understand how we might otherwise treat this pandemic. So, for example, one of the things that we know about viruses in general, and this, this need be said as a very quick reminder, look, viruses as microbial entities, it's not as though they want to, they have one simple purpose in life, to replicate. And in order to replicate, they themselves cannot use nutrients in the open environment like most other organisms, including bacteria, and replicate and mate and have a good old time. Viruses can only replicate when they take hostage a living cell. So in a quirky evolutionary perspective, viruses technically don't want to kill their host. They want to infect the host, get into the host, use the host's cells use the machinery of the host's cells for their purposes of replication. Now, this may seem so overtly trivial and obvious, but once we actually appreciate this, we can appreciate that there were landmark things from genetic insights as well as good basic medicine that we could apply. Case in point, when viruses infect a human host cell, and we, let's just pick specific here, to coronaviruses and to the COVID-like viruses, up to and including the current SARS-CoV-2. When it infects a cell, it's hijacking the machinery, that human cell that was going about its business, living, doing whatever job that it was doing, replicating itself. The virus is going to use that machinery for its replication. Now, when this happens, for example, one of the first things that happen in a human cell secondary to SARS-CoV-2 or viral infections is that an essential micronutrient, selenium, which is a cofactor to some of our most important antioxidative cellular processes, that selenium is depleted as the virus hijacks our cells. And when selenium is depleted in our cells, our anti oxidative capacity is depleted. So classically, what do we see with viral infections and specifically with SARS-CoV-2? We see massive, excessive oxidation. And that massive, excessive oxidation now creates massive cellular inflammation secondary to the oxidation. So before we even get into the, you know, the rocket science of SARS-CoV-2 infection, there are basic cellular mechanisms that when they go awry, we have dysfunction and we can help the cell. We can replenish these micronutrients, amongst them things like selenium, amongst them things like NAC and acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to what? To that very glutathione pathway, that humongously important anti-oxidation detoxification pathway. 
Now, all of these things, by the way, have been shown in clinical trials as significantly helping early stage infection to do what? To say, okay, we're not stopping the infection, but we are slowing the cellular dysfunction secondary to our human cells being hijacked. Because why? We are replenishing the things that the virus is using in its hijacking methodology. We still haven't killed the virus. We still haven't gotten there. But we can significantly improve the fighting, the, the resilience of the cells by basic genetics and biology. And amongst them, I'm going to conclude with this. If, I, if, if anyone were to ask me, what is the biggest understanding and discovery, both from a genetic perspective, lifestyle, environment, and COVID, that is being overlooked? By the way, it has been studied. It's been studied at the best institutes in the world, and it is beyond me why we're not doing a better job getting this information out, and it has to do with your vitamin D. So very quickly, why do we see resurgences in these viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, during the winter months, especially in areas north of the Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia latitude? So for everyone out there, if you're living north of Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, from October to about April, because of the latitude that you're living at, the sun and the angle of the sun is not giving you enough sunlight, even if you were to go, you know, go out there in your, big, in your birthday suit, you're not getting enough sun to make enough vitamin D. What is vitamin D? Well, vitamin D by its name is a misnomer in the first place. We have done a huge disservice to vitamin D, calling it a vitamin. Vitamin D is one of the most important hormones in the human body. Vitamin D, the hormone, like all other hormones, change cellular behavior when the hormone enters the cell, when estrogen, the hormone, enters the cell, when thyroid, the, the, the thyroid hormone enters the cell, insulin hormone enters the cell. Likewise, when vitamin D enters the human cell, what does it do? It changes the cellular performance. And in this case, what is that performance? Vitamin D, the hormone, equips your cells to be radically better at dealing with vitamin invasion with virus invasions when vitamin d the hormone 125-dihydroxycalciferol when that hormone binds to and enters your cells be it your b cells your t cells your respiratory lining the border cells when vitamin d enters these cells your cells begin to change their DNA expression, their gene expression, to be exponentially better at handling that invasion. And here we are, me sitting in Toronto, not getting anywhere close, not to mention I'm the darkest one on this call. I'm an island boy. I should be, I should be, you know, I should be on the beach somewhere. Okay? And I'm sitting at the top of January. And if no one were to tell me otherwise, and if I were not to supplement with enough vitamin D, my body's immune system, so vitamin D, the hormone, ratchets up the immune system, not just the puritanical antibody production and T-cell ability to invade and infiltrate where the 
where the infection is, but vitamin D modulates the volume of the immune response. Remember we said earlier that your very immune response good, but sometimes when the volume, when the voraciousness of the immune response is too much, then it becomes the thing that gets you ill and that frankly can kill you. Well, vitamin D not only does, as a hormone, not only does it better prepare ourselves for the invasion in the first place, not only does it prepare ourselves once the invasion does happen to get rid of the viral load, it also tonates the immune response so that it does not get out of hand and it and of itself become deleterious. For all of these steps, the genetics of vitamin D, hugely important. The genetics of your antioxidative process, hugely important. The genetics of your anti-inflammatory response, hugely important. And I'll end with one last thing. Ultimately, when viruses enter your cell and they hijack your machinery, your cell, that amazing ecosystem, that thriving micro-community of your cell, this virus comes in, stick them up, guys. I'm going to use your resources for me to mate and replicate myself. Well, the sub-organelle in the cell that suffers the most is the mitochondria. And so the malaise associated with viral infections and specifically SARS-CoV-2 is at its heart of hearts a mitochondrial disease. The mitochondria suffer, the energy production suffers. And you have to know what are the genetics that implicates into that. You have to know what are the micronutrients and the things that can help you recuperate from that. So to conclude, when it comes to SARS-CoV-2, we must absolutely be looking for the new spectrums of vaccines and the new drugs, but we have to understand that there is a plethora of basic cellular biology that would equip individuals to A, better fend off the infection in the first place, B, were they to become infected, that their cells are better capable to handle the hijack process. These are things that are well known. These are things that we and many other amazing institutes across the world are looking at. Dr. Mansour, before I know that we're we've been running a long time here. Before we wrap it up with our last question, I just have more of a philosophical question for you. And um, and this kind of stemmed out of subjecting my poor wife, who's our in-house um, dietitian, to what genetic testing, and you know she she got a hold of the report before I could sit down and, and speak to her about it. And of course, she's like, "Well, great, I'm going to get schizophrenia and depression and cancer and diabetes <laughs> all in one." I said, "No, that's not the case." And I think this is also an appeal that you know this type of testing needs to be. Uh, handled under very experienced professionals, you know, along with your patients. But my question to you is, in your many years now of rigorous experience and knowledge, is our future set in stone? No, it is not. If I can ask you and all of the audience that would listen to this to play a little mind game and picture uh, imagery in your mind, so here we go. There's a white sheet of paper. And in the middle of that white sheet of paper, we draw a circle, a decent sized circle. That circle and all it contains is your genetic 
manual. So the circle that you've just drawn in the middle of that white sheet of paper, that is your entire genomic makeup. And yes, that genomic makeup is going to contribute. It is going to, at some places, dictate the cellular function more often than not, not just dictate, but contribute. That's your circle. Now, what I want everyone to picture is, and we're going to draw on a little bit of high school math, we're going to draw an equilateral triangle. We're going to draw a triangle that just perfectly fits over that circle, such that when we're done, we've got a little bit of you know masonry type imagery here. We've got a circle, and that circle is just inside, just inside of this equilateral equal-sided triangle. The circle is just touching the inner sides of the triangle. Okay. We're going to label the apices, the points of the triangle, the following. Environment, nutrition, lifestyle. So what we have now is we have the circle. It's your genetic makeup. That's what you that's your amazing legacy. Okay, fair enough. You cannot change the actual coding of your legacy. Well, I mean, technically you can with the new advancement, but for the average Joe, we're not talking here about, uh, you know, certain advancements, we're talking about for the average person. Your code is your code. That's your circle. But what you have to understand is how that circle manifests itself, how your operating manual is read. See, I can read a manual, the same manual, but the intonation with which I read it, the emphasis that I place at certain parts of the manual brings about different outcomes. And these, this triangle of environment, lifestyle, and nutrition for you and for every one of us is what is bringing about the manifestation of our genomic manual. Now, in that imagery and conclusion that we have, where the triangle is just perfectly encompassing the circle, this is the imagery of the potential of optimal health, meaning when each and every one of us finds that synchronous environment, nutrition, and lifestyle appropriate for our unique circle, then we have the opportunity for optimal health. But every one of us, more often than not, here's how we're living. Let's go back to that page with the circle in the middle. Now what we're going to do is we're going to to leave the circle in the middle of the page. We're going to take the triangle and shift it slightly, whether it's to the left, to the right, up, down, 30 degrees. We're just going to shift the triangle a bit. What happens now is the triangle is no longer synchronous, meaning we are now in a mode here. This Caribbean boy is sitting in the middle of January in gloomy Toronto. My genes, and especially my genes as it relates to the efficiency with which I make vitamin D, for example, I inherited a set of genes that assumed I was going to be in a pair of shorts chilling on a beach. But I'm anything but chilling on a beach here in Toronto. So my environment is now out of kilter with my operating manual. Therefore, my nutrition, for example, and my nutrient intake has to start being augmented to account for the suboptimal environment that I'm in. So we conclude by saying, your genetic makeup by no means absolutely defines your outcome. There are cases clearly where there is a mutation that equals a disease, but where we end where we started, 
What we are looking at are the genetic changes that does impact cellular efficiency. It does. But we can augment those inefficiencies if we understood what did we inherit? What was the optimal triangle for your circle? Because remember, on this piece of paper, there are individual circles. We're not all the same circle. Therefore, we're not all the same triangulation of environment, nutrition, and lifestyle appropriate for that circle. Optimal health, and in conclusion, what we are doing and what we hope to do with the amazing clinicians at Thrive Medical is what? Study the circle of a person so we know where it exists on the piece of paper and help them get their triangle, which is almost always non-synchronous with their circle, which is almost always shifted away from the circle to help them bring their triangle into synchrony with their circle. When that happens, we have the opportunity for optimal health. Very elegantly stated and a beautiful picture to paint to be able to try to understand that. So another question along kind of those lines, um, I was talking with a buddy, Dr. McClelland, who's an ER doctor. And he had this question because he's in the thick of it with the COVID and they're just bursting at seams at a large hospital system. And we were talking about, you know, he sees the, the young, healthy, metabolically fit person that performs like expected. They, they get through COVID very well, very few symptoms or mi minor symptoms. Then you have the person that looks metabolically fit, that is healthy, their basic labs look good, yet they don't perform as expected. They, they have a, a long... Uh, course, sometimes even fatal course. And then you have the person that's older, COPD, sick, and you would expect them to do very poorly. And they tend to do well, surprisingly. So um, is there any genetics that you've seen, you know, in regards to like maybe the ACE uh, or some other risk factor that, that gives us an advantage or disadvantage with our genetics? Definitely. Um, and we and others have been looking at this Clearly, the data has not yet been fully even a year into it because we're, we're still hobbled by getting the plethora of patient intake, meaning, like you said, the individuals properly stratified into the young and the healthy that should do well and do well, the young and the healthy who should do well but didn't do well, the elder and the comorbidity that should do poorly and do poorly, the healthy and the comorbidity who should do who should not do well but do well that stratification of the population so that we can do more in-depth analyses is still happening but we have seen a few noteworthy things the first thing is that we've seen that there is still after it's all said and done a year into this into this pandemic there's still a clear male preponderance and We've, we and many others have looked at what might contribute to this male preponderance, and there is a hypothesis, a strong hypothesis, and that is that the, the key on the virus, the spike protein, which is its key, that is entering the human cell via the lock, and what is the lock, what is the receptor, what is the doorway, the human doorway that the virus is entering through, the ACE receptor. Now, in order for the spike key, the spike protein, to enter the lock, it needs to be modified. And there is a gene that makes an enzyme, the temper SS2 gene that makes the self-named enzyme. This is a human enzyme, but it's somewhat of a, you know, it's a traitor enzyme in this case, because this human enzyme helps the virus key, 
to be shaped, the spike protein, in order to get into the ACE receptor. Mm. That human enzyme, temper SS2, is turned on, that gene is turned on by testosterone. So now let's look at a foundation of things. First and foremost, we now understand why definitely, significantly so, prepubescent boys and girls are way less at risk than any other age group or any other you know, stratifier population. Because right off the bat, the activator, in this case, the hormonal testosterone activator of the enzyme, temper SS2, which is the enzyme that will shape the viral key, isn't there in that age population. Now, when we get into the you know, post-pubescent, to answer your question, what are we seeing? We are seeing differences in the sequencing of the temper SS2 gene, the gene that makes the enzyme. Makes sense that maybe there are certain people with certain versions of the temper SS2 enzyme that is being more traitorous, that is doing the job of preparing the viral spike protein better than other individuals. And, that, and data has started to pan that out. We need to look at it more broadly. There are definitely differences in the ACE and the very receptor. Sometimes the lock, the, the receptor that the virus is getting into is just that much more easily breakable. It's that more easy, easily, you know, pickable. And so that regardless of the temper SS2 activity, regardless of the spike protein, some people innately, genetically, the virus can enter into the cell more easily. But other than these, you can almost say structural, obvious things that we would look at, what we've also found is significant differences in the vitamin D genetics, significant differences, predictive of outcome and predictive of duration and course of disease. Because again, you know, Rhett, Philip, I couldn't stress enough. If you saw what the SARS-CoV-2 virus does to the human cell, meaning if you looked at what happens functionally, what are the dysfunctions secondary to SARS-CoV-2 infection? And if you look at what the hormonal 125-dihydroxycalciferol does to the human cell, they fit like a glove, meaning vitamin D's activation and cellular transformation is almost a perfect counterbalance to the cellular transformation that happens when the virus takes over the cell. Just so that you know, this has been so you know, just because we're not talking about here in North America doesn't mean it's not being spoken of elsewhere. The NHS in the UK, their, their equivalent of the NIH, has now mandated the free distribution of vitamin D to its entire population because of these findings. So to conclude and to answer your question, what are we seeing? We're definitely seeing genetic to, to explain the why do we have that healthy group that should be healthy, but they turn out to be poor performers or the unhealthy group that should have been unhealthy outcomes but turned out to weather the infection remarkably well. We are seeing innate genetic differences at genes that affect the lock and key model, the genes that affect, that affect testosterone production, temper SS2 uh, activation, the ACE uh, receptor modulation. We're seeing uh, variations there. Second group of variations, we are seeing variations innately in interleukin and interferon genes. These are the genes that encode the messengers 
that dictate the volume or voracity of the immune response. And what do we see as one of the consequences that leads to poor outcome with COVID? Sometimes the immune response gets out of hand. We get the cytokine storm. We get the uncontrolled infiltration of the neutrophils. This response of the immune system occurs because of these messenger molecules with their genes and we, we clearly see genetic variations in those so that some people simply are wired to have a more exaggerated immune response and this exaggerated immune response if not tempered early in infection can lead to the type of things that we're seeing in terms of cytokine storms uh fluidic intake into the lung tissue and so on and so forth and in the final group of genetic variations as we started we end we see genetic variations and we're some of the first in the world to document this in the more standard cellular processes we see genetic variations in your capacity for antioxidation in your methylation cycle which is so radically important in your anti-inflammatory capacity and that variations there help us to understand is this person likely to end up with that acute inflammatory response with that chronic remember rat philip one of the things we're not talking about is there's a whole subgroup of patients they recover from the acute episode but then life seems to have changed in the months since profound fatigue fibromyalgic like concussive like symptomologies we need to understand what's happening in those patients as well and the genetic underling underlinings of those patients are going to likely be or can be and they and we're seeing it as different from some of the genetic underlinings of why some patients get that immediate really you know go down that vortex of horrible initial response these are all of the genetic things that are there and we are looking at them I feel like you've probably just answered the final question for the series with with that and um, and th through some of the other questions with the vitamin D. But I'll I'll ask you anyway because it's uh, it's how we're going to finish every one of these interviews. And it's just you know what is one thing you consider to be a non negotiable to your immunity? I really know that I'm going to speak here. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but honest to goodness, guys, and this is not a this is not superficial. You know, sometimes we place superficiality just because something is cheap or because something seems readily available. I cannot stress enough that as North Americans and people of Northern latitudes during the winter months flipped for the Southern latitudes, non-negotiable is to maintain your vitamin D levels. And why is that non-negotiable? Because we're talking about 70, if not more percent of our population, adults, children, no matter what ethnicity, in these months are clinically insufficient in their vitamin D levels. And that one change, we're not going to eradicate coronavirus with this, but that one change can cause a delta shift in our societies of individual preparedness for this infection. Were you to be exposed and were you to become infected, it can give you at least a delta chance of different response just by having your vitamin D levels up, just by having a few basic micronutrients amongst them, things like having selenium, NAC, zinc, you know, and, and we have people in extremely important health positions in our countries 
either underplaying this or when they do. I mean, again, I don't want to name any names just to not have any legal consequences, but we have important people in our health community, our health governmental faces saying, you know what? Yes, I take vitamin D and I take some vitamin C, but that's all that I take. There's no evidence for anything else. Well, first and foremost, where did you get the evidence for vitamin D and vitamin C? Good for you. But there are other important things that we can do, and they are readily available. The first do no harm matches with these things. These are things that, of course, always speak to your clinician, always speak to your clinician. But there are basic things, starting with vitamin D, that's non-negotiable, that as a populace facing this pandemic, even if we created a 20% delta reduction in poor outcome, think about what that would do to the strain on our immune system. And if we could do, if we could reduce that 20% poor outcome on our immune, on our hospital systems by basic intelligence, science, evidence-based medicine, why aren't we doing it? So the non-negotiable here, Rhett, Philip, are things like vitamin D and a few other things, and I could give you a list, but there are things that are well-published, well-understood that could make a difference. Yeah, I wish that was more part of the narrative. I mean, just just to, for, to educate people, to empower them, to be able to t- take control of their health. And you, you had it well-stated, and for your understanding of science, you have such a deeper level of molecular function and cell function. And, and like you said, there's plenty of other things that you could mention that would benefit the population if we would just have that talk. And I, I think it's also a common thread here at Thrive that, you know, yes, sometimes we look at fancy data, but at the end of the day, the take-homes are simple, right? I mean, your, your non-negotiables are something that everyone can do at home. Absolutely. And I would be remiss, Rhett, Philip, and maybe I'll end with this, of course. I, you know, this is, it's been such an honor to be here with you. So if you do have, I've made room for my time, but if you'd like, I would end with this. I read an article and I mentioned this to you in my, on our first little sit down. I read an article on Yahoo Health and it was one of those articles that gets my blood pressure up. So it was this article representing data from, I believe it was, anyways, again, I wouldn't, it was from a very reputable uh, medical Research Institute in America, very reputable, would be name recognized by anyone. Mm-hmm. And in this institute, they reported in the article on Yahoo Health, not where you go for your health, mind you, that there was a very strong association with the intake of melatonin and better outcome upon if you were to be infected with the coronavirus. Now, for all of our listeners out there, none of these things are meant to be specific medical recommendations. What rather it's meant to be is things that you can educate yourself, speak to your clinicians about, and certainly the brilliant clinicians at Thrive Medical. Now, in the article, they spoke about this very strong association, but the article then interviews these two supposed guru MDs, you know, as the experts, who both chimed in, and one of which said, this is an example of the horrible, when you don't do double-blinded studies, this is an association, what does a sleep hormone have to do with viral infections? This is a classic example of poor science, poor medicine, the sleep hormone melatonin has nothing to do with a viral uh, infection. This institute, as good as it may be, should be ashamed of themselves. (laughs) Now, the reason I'm being so emotional and empath and, and, and sort of, you know, um, expressive about this is you have this population who might go and read the Yahoo Health, who would have seen this 
And who would go, yeah, I guess that makes sense. What in the world? Melatonin, that's sleep. What does this have to do with a viral infection? Whereas all you needed to do was go to PubMed, the national, the international database of all peer-reviewed publications, type in melatonin and immunity. Just that, per the topic of discussion. Let's end in somewhere perfect for the topic that you've created in your series. Melatonin and immunity, when typed into PubMed, gives you over a thousand peer-reviewed articles and how, yes, that sleep hormone melatonin intimately, drastically, functionally impacts your immune response. And so we are peddling, yes, you've got snake oil being peddled in some quarters, but you equally have certain voices that are throwing out uneducated comments about things that can be used at the basic level to improve health outcomes by all means, while we wait for the vaccine, by all means, while we wait for better pharmaceutics, but we are doing a huge disservice to our communities by not educating them. And we're, and for the clinicians out there, shame on you for if you didn't take the time to even go to PubMed before making such an audacious and frankly stupid comment. Agreed. Wow. Nailed it. Yep. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mansoor, I think it goes without saying that uh, we definitely need you to come on future podcasts. This has been an amazing experience, and we could talk to you for hours, no doubt. No, it's, a, it's a real, real, real fun time, guys. And, and by all means, um, you know, getting when we have clinicians that have not lost what they entered their profession for, this is the most noble of profession to 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 bring about health and to keep health. If that if that's not a noble profession, I don't know what else is. But let's not forget that what we're dealing with is we're dealing with human beings, and we need a discourse, and we need to be empathetic. And so, when I do find clinicians like yourself that fits that bill, it's always an honor to speak with you. Well, we thank you, and the honor was ours, and and very well said. And and we have to approach everything with an open mind. I, I, Rhett and I always talk about this. We'll approach medicine with a childlike mind because everything we've learned, we're relearning and where there's mm -hmm. new understanding and, and never shoot things down like those two physicians. I mean, that that's shameful. And unfortunately, that occurs a lot in medicine, but we are still learning every day. Indeed. All right, guys. Well, Mansoor, wow. Well, Hmm. <laughs> I feel like I just hit mute and just kind of sat back and uh, as if I was at a full-on conference. Well, it's certainly one of those podcasts where you need to let Dr. Mansoor speak because he's eloquent and knowledgeable and, you know, it's very condensed and, and usable information. So, yeah. Well, I'm yeah, it's so practical. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I had to, I know we, we uh, interviewed it for quite a while there, but I had to ask the question because I think is the precision medicine gets more cultivated and the DNA tests come out. Everyone is definitely asking the same question, freaking out like, is this going to, is this going to determine my future? Is it all set in stone? You know, they, it's yeah. almost like they're more hesitant to figure out what's on the piece of paper than the way that Dr. Monsoor constructed it, which is relevant information so you can have actionable, take actionable steps in your life, which is obviously what we do here at Threat, right? Totally. Well, and the whole vitamin D too, that all of that part, I mean, wow. It, uh, 
like it's just so accessible, right? I, I want to ask you guys because I mean, you guys have me on uh, Thorns uh, supplement, which is a Philip, remind me, it's one drop vitamin D and K2, I believe. Yeah, so you got D3 and K2. So you need K2 for the D3 to actually be functional okay. in your system. So that's that's the key. So um, is that enough then? Like I, I wanted to, I was thinking after we should ask them, but like what would, is it, like what, based on how he was talking about it, what would be the, the, the average amount? So most of the literature shows that a, a level from 50 to 80 is protective, but there's some people even pushing it 80 to 100 uh, on, on your blood work. So we'll give you about another couple weeks on it, and then we'll have you go get your, your D level checked and just look what your baseline level was from last time, and then we can go from gotcha. there. But yeah, so that's, that's, that's a basic recommendations. Again, you know, work with your uh, physician on that, but that's really what the research has been showing. I've tried to keep mine around 80. And that's where mine's been. And I just recently recovered from COVID and I, I was instituting all those things that he was talking about, the melatonin, magnesium, selenium, selenium. zinc. And um, I was actually taking sulforaphane uh, as well, because that uh, is something that Dr. Hasi was talking about is a very, very powerful inducer of glutathione. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we do that deplete glutathione. And even Tylenol being one of them, and that's a common recommendation. You go to the clinic, get tested for COVID, you're positive, and they say take Tylenol for the fever. But acetaminophen will decrease your glutathione levels. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's also just basic statistics. Excuse me, statistics. So you know, upwards of seventy or eighty percent of the population above a certain longitude, uh, excuse me, latitude are going to have be deficient in vitamin D. So yeah. even if you can't get tested and worry about the levels, chances are, statistically speaking, you're going to need vitamin D supplementation. Yeah, the, the docs have really done a great job um, pushing people to wear sunscreen and stay out of the sun. So and all that, that is good and healthy, uh, depending on type of sunscreen you're using, but it also is also contributing to your decrease of uh, getting vitamin D naturally from the sunlight. And then in modern times, and especially in lockdowns in some of these states, they don't even want you out of your house. So that's kind of counterintuitive. So uh, if you're not getting any sun exposure at all, then you definitely need to be supplementing. And most people are going to have to supplement. Their levels aren't going to be where they need to be. Yeah. So, um, you know, you really have to, like you said, go out there in your birthday suit. And that's kind of the best way. So if you are going to go out in the sun, you know, just at least 30 minutes, as much skin as you can show, and then and then protect yourself. Yeah, but again, again, also, you can't get fancy with this stuff, right? That's why we always talk about metabolic health. We always talk about supplement the correct supplementation. You know, people are so quick to run out and get something fancy or some sort of the procedure and injection when, when in reality you could just do a few simple things at home and have a pretty good chance of beating the virus. Yeah, metabolic health was one of the biggest things. We didn't even really go into uh, that with uh, Dr. Mansoor in this particular podcast, but we did discuss it with Dr. Hasi. And you know, keeping your insulin low and your glucose low is really, really important. Having a good metabolic health is going to protect you not only from um, viruses and other bacteria and other infections, but also chronic diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, migraines, you know, all those things fall into that bucket of chronic inflammation. 
Yeah. So, and you know, I think it's also important for the listeners to understand the pattern. So he really actually did talk about metabolic health. You know, a healthy body is made of up of healthy cells, mm-hmm. and proper cellular function gives your body the best chance to dispose of the pathogen. You know, whether it's a virus or bacteria, and so that essentially is metabolic health. It's the health of your cells, right? So we're all talking about the same thing. And one reason I'm being redundant here is as we go through these docuseries, I want you guys to start seeing the patterns that that we're not even telling telling the practitioners and the experts to say. It just keeps coming up over and over again. So true. Amazing. Well, I mean, we've got a few more lined up. It's, um, it's funny, just like the first series, there's a lot of, you know, back to the basics coming out, even in, in this topic, which is just, you know, for, for me, incredibly complex, but thank you. Thankfully, Dr. Mansour is, is so poetic in the way he describes everything. It's, uh, digestible, but I am pumped for the remaining guests. Selenium sandwiches for everybody this afternoon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we need to make sure the lawyers are happy and make sure that this information is clear for everyone. So please bear with me. But the information on this podcast is for general informational purposes only. The statements and views expressed does not constitute a practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The Peak Health Unlocked podcast disclaims any responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of the information contained herein. Opinions and views of the guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for any statements made by guests. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their own healthcare professionals for any such conditions. If you do want to become a patient of Thrive Performance in Regenerative Medicine, please go to thrivemedicine.com to contact us and we would be happy and honored to help you unlock your peak health. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day.